0: On. I'm Look.
1: There goes the game. Welcome to our Best of Ithaca Now show for stories art correspondence produced this past spring. I hope you're having a good evening. I'm your host Jay Bradley and thank you for joining us. For tonight's show, we bring you five of the best stories from this spring. While recent months have brought difficulty and changes no one was expecting, our reporters were still able to bring in some great stories this year, both in person and remotely. Tonight, you'll hear stories about local topics and how they touch on broader issues. Religious groups adjusting to the pandemic, the connections between people, a new type of social media, and local experts weighing in on how the news is reported. But first, we'll hear a package from our special Good News experience from correspondents Antonio Fermi and Himadri Saith on the history of activists in Ithaca.
2: I'm Himadri Saith.
3: And I'm Antonio Fermi. Thanks for tuning in to Good News, a special edition of WICB's Ithaca Now. In a time of, well... A lot of not so good news. We became interested in learning about some silver linings happening within the Ithaca community.
4: I was called out on the first Earth Day. I went around my hometown chalking Earth Day messages on sidewalks and somebody said, why are you messing up the sidewalks? So, you know, if you want to be an activist, you're not always greeted fondly.
3: That was Gene Eldris, who has been an active member of the Ithaca community for his whole life. The story he shared about social activism from 50 years ago shows how Ithaca has always been an area that has advocated for radical social change. The city has seen social movement uprisings sparked by human rights violations, environmental injustices, and corporate structures. In particular, Ithaca has a unique and meaningful role in LGBTQ history. It was one of the first cities in the U.S. to prohibit discrimination based on sexual orientation.
2: Fortunately, There are institutions such as the Tompkins County Center for History and Culture that provide resources to community members pertaining to their local history. And I think we may have found a really interesting one.
3: The MOVE organization was founded in Ithaca just after the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in April 1968. MOVE described themselves as a community action group created by local townspeople including students for the purpose of working against poverty and discrimination, which still entraps a significant segment of our fellow citizens. Wow, that was intense.
2: MOVE functioned through action groups in areas such as jobs, housing, education, and public service. Membership was open to all residents in the community who wished to work towards these goals.
3: The organization's primary focus was on three major areas, housing, employment, and education. Several initiatives were undertaken by the group, including efforts to facilitate access to housing for poor and black residents.
2: The MOVE Employment Committee set out to solve the largest problems facing low and middle income groups in Tompkins County. They discussed the issues that came from the lack of daycare programs, which meant that women with children could work only after making expensive arrangements for the care of their children.
3: A mother deciding to work would barely make any money given the associated costs with getting a job. This is why the Employment Committee wanted to get wives of low-income earners into the labor force, therefore doubling the family income. They also discussed reasons why carpools are an important substitute to the bus system.
2: The Education Committee of MOVE was working with the school system in curriculum planning for Afro-American history, Black culture, and fully representing all cultures within Ithaca. One project was to locate the most up-to-date and accurate textbooks for Ithaca classrooms to use, specifically covering Black history and culture.
3: The April 17, 1970 issue of the MOVE newsletter referred to a, quote, substantial dropping off of the activity of the organization. Aidwood Fleissig, the chairman of the Employment Committee at the time, explained why he resigned from the MOVE organization. I'm resigning as chairman of this committee because I feel totally frustrated. I'm also disgusted. Look at it my way. Here I am sitting on a package of solutions which I believe would significantly improve the welfare of all the people in this county and, if generally applied, of all the people in the country, and I can't get any appreciable body of people to work on any of them for any appreciable period of time. My only alternative in this respect is to devote this time I spent on current MOVE business to getting other organizations in on some of the solutions. This message marked the beginning of the end for the MOVE organization. A glimpse of activism led by forward-thinking leaders who had the right ideas in mind, but were ultimately not able to get the funding and support to make them into reality.
4: Locally, there's a lot of politics even going on at this level. I've been to some meetings that say, well, these people think they're doing the right thing, but in my view, it's not the right thing. (laughs) And how do you tell them that it isn't? How, How do you get your views of what reality is into the people who can make things happen?
2: But as MOVE dissolved, the idea of social activism and the vision that they started out with remained strong, only to be represented by other organizations that came after. But how did these other organizations continue to thrive when MOVE saw such an early end? We talked to representatives from three organizations presently working in the Ithaca community, with different historical origins focused on the three issues that MOVE was most concerned about – education, housing, and employment.
5: I spend a lot of time working with the district at a school leadership and administrative level to make sure my funds donated by our generous donors get to the teachers and impact classrooms as smoothly as possible. That was Stephen Manley,
2: the Executive Director of Ithaca Public Education Initiative, or IPEI, a hyperlocal nonprofit foundation started in 1996 with the goal of raising funds to support teachers, educators, and school leaders in the Ithaca community.
3: We also spoke to Johanna Anderson, the Executive Director of Ithaca Neighborhood Housing Services. The nonprofit housing provider was founded in 1976 and works throughout seven counties within the central New York area. Their mission is to encourage stability and diversity while assisting low to moderate income earners in obtaining quality housing on a long term basis.
6: So, we have basically four lines of business construction services, which does a lot of health and safety repairs for low income homeowners. We've also got a lending department that does down payment and closing costs for first time home buyers. A property management arm that they manage about 530 different units and then we also have a real estate development department that builds new construction it does rehab they build multi-family single family
2: uh, for sale rentals and finally pete myers is the coordinator slash executive director of the tompkins county workers center he was also one of the co-founders of the organization in 2003.
7: We actually started as a Tompkins County Living Wage Coalition. You know, living wage is what a person, a single person needs to be self sufficient. It doesn't actually get into family sizes because, like, obviously, people with larger families need to have more money. So that's been integral to what we do. But actually, less than six months into the birth of our organization in 2003, we started a workers' rights hotline um, because while a lot of people, especially working class poor people, agree that they should be paid a living wage, you know, especially back in the early 2000s, it didn't seem like you know, that's not going to be an easy thing to get. Um, So we started Workers' Rights Hotline as a way to get workers more involved with the organization. And that's been very vital to what we do. And we encourage workers to organize unions through that and take action in concert with each other in workplaces to change things.
2: Unfortunately, not all social activism is effective. Even in what Flyzik said, he indicated that it is difficult for those involved in nonprofits like MOVE to follow through on the positive changes they want to make in a way that truly benefits people.
3: While this endeavor may be difficult, nonprofit organizations are a great way for innovators and social activists to have a positive impact on their community. Our local experts emphasize the importance of understanding the needs of a community and work in that direction. Stephen Manley from IPEA said,
5: So when I say that a nonprofit should make sure their community is ready and able to accept what they're offering, what I mean is it, it, it would be fantastic to offer a program or a product to a school if it's all online and it's an amazing educational opportunity, but your students don't have access to that particular online venue. So you've spent a lot of time and energy and thought and probably positive intention. But if you're not aware of the uh, the ability of the group you're trying to give to, to receive what you're giving, it, it can cause a lot of frustration. We recognize that Ithaca is incredibly blessed with a variety of talents and a variety of resources that not everyone in every place has access to.
3: Johanna reiterated that
5: It's not just the key for social activism,
6: but for um, really any endeavor is you, you have to listen to and keep an open mind and an open heart. And that unfortunately for most of the problems that are out there, it's not a simple solution.
2: Social activism is a continuous effort,
6: but Anderson said, it's not one solution. It's a multitude of solutions that are just slowly chipping away at whatever the issue is. And so, you know, you're you're in it for the long haul. And I think by sometimes decisions or social activism, I think it's just, it's, it's done more of a sprint and less of the marathon.
3: And according to Myers, it's about letting the people tell you what they want instead of you telling them what they need. What's effective for
7: organizers, somebody in our midst said, how do you know that that's what workers want, a living wage? How do you know that they don't want to have toilet paper freshly stocked in their bathrooms at work? Which I thought was an interesting point. I mean, you know, there's so, sometimes can be presumptions within social justice organizing groups or organizations that we know what people want. Uh, you know, people want to have more money.
2: It's challenge. Elaborating on the challenging parts of social activism,
5: Manly says. One of the challenges that we can often face is would, would be possibly a duplication of, of efforts. And so as nonprofits begin to develop and begin to evolve, it's really important that they create ways to stay in relationship with one another and to stay aware of what each other is doing. And uh, here in Tompkins County, there are a number of groups where executives and finance officers of different nonprofits meet regularly. And that has been really valuable.
3: The challenges only seem to begin at the level of organizations though, and go all the way to the people who are being affected by change. Anderson says.
6: Characteristically, humans just don't like change. So when it comes to affordable housing, I think a lot of NIMBY stuff has to do with this perceived feeling about, well, this is the way it's always looked. That's always been an empty lot. They're taking a very small slice of time and saying that it's been that way forever. With INHS, one of the things that we really like to do early on is a very involved community engagement process. We're not a cookie cutter developer. The solution that we used last year is not going to work in this location.
3: And sometimes, interestingly, what we may perceive as challenges can also have their silver linings.
7: Employers tend to be afraid of us, which is kind of a strange thing, but not a bad thing from our point of view. You know, it's, uh, you know, they don't want to get bad publicity from us. But you know, like some of the changes are very ambitious changes, like to get a living wage for everybody in Tompkins County. is not an easy change to make happen.
2: Someone famous who I don't really remember the name of once said, focus on the solution, not on the problem.
5: We've grown in our scope of leadership to really work hard to represent at our leader and volunteer level. Uh, the majority of the school and the communities the schools represent. And that's been an active goal of ours to involve the community at large in our conversation. As we circle that back and say, how can we support the community at large? We wanna have as many voices in the room as possible. And I think that's one of the things we've done well is uh, been able to balance being a leader and being a supporter across our history.
6: INHS was really one of the first organizations in the U.S., especially in a smaller city, to adopt this model of community development, where it said that we're gonna have three voices involved. We're gonna have local residents be involved, local government, and local business to determine what the issues are, what resources we have, and then come up with unique solutions. And that's still how INHS is run today. You know, it INHS over the years, I think has been so strong because it has really had, had wonderful partnerships. When you have really strong partnerships with local government to help you understand how the programs should be run, what the issues are, when you have residents that are telling you on the ground, this is what the issue is, really, those make just such a world of difference. I think you end up having a much stronger solution.
2: Myers also highlighted the importance of working with legislators and local leaders when working on his living wage campaign.
7: So like four or five years ago a movement started nationally fight for $15 an hour never actually bought into the fight for 15 specifically because the minimum wage would be higher here than it is in many places in the country Uh, but you know so the county legislature would have to pass that legislation to this effect and then it would have to be approved by the state government which would make it more of a challenge, especially right now because of, uh, you know, one of the problems with the living wage movement is uh, people who are caregivers, you know, make poverty wages and they get the funding from government, federal and state sources that want to keep, give as little money as possible to provide for these services. I think we're very good at educating people on, on this and, we, you know, we've convened like a powerful working group of people, county legislatures and business leaders to address this for the last two years. But it's not, and right now, it's more of a challenge than ever because people are not gonna be concerned about living wage in the same way.
3: While circumstances may be vastly different than they were during the civil rights era, the essence of social activism remains the same. Ithaca is a town with incredibly generous citizens that frequently engage in social activism. I truly believe it is a great starting point for any organization, group of people, or even an individual that dreams of making a positive change in their community.
2: The organizations we talk to are still continuing to function during COVID-19 through YouTube presentations, massive Zoom calls, and various other work-from-home strategies, because social activism is ongoing and it is resilient. And while every organization with a great vision may not survive, the commitment to service seems to live on, represented by the many organizations like MOVE that have done their bit throughout history and into the present.
6: Helping others, and that other can be anything. It can be the environment, it can be animals, whatever that other may be. But helping somebody other than yourself, um, it is so rewarding. And it is, it's is—it's the best feeling in the world when I can't wait to get to work every day, even if it's down in the basement.
3: For WICB News, I'm Antonio Fermi.
2: And I'm Himadri Sid.
1: You're listening to Best of Ithaca Now on WICB. The pandemic has affected everything, from how we speak to one another to how we shop, but also, for many people, how you practice religion. WICB correspondents Chella Beeks, Alex Dean, and myself reached out to different groups to see how they've adjusted. In a typical week, a lot of people will have one day where they get up, put on nicer clothes, and go to a religious service, participating not only in their respective worship services, but also having a community wherever that may be. The only thing is, we haven't had a typical week for a while now. Across the country, religious institutions are still doing service every week and more, just this time without the congregation all in the same place. So
0: Zoom has seemed to work best for us for worship services because we can still allow people to participate, say things, share things during the service. It has its drawbacks.
1: That's Debbie Reynolds, the pastor at First Baptist Church in Ithaca. Religion isn't something people can just put on pause like some other things, leaving religious leaders here in Ithaca and all over to quickly work out technical bugs and trying to reach out to their congregations.
0: I think there's been a lot of um, creativity and also patience with knowing we not it's not going to be perfect and most weeks there's something about doing the worship together or whatever that may have a little bit of a glitch and people have been very patient with that.
1: Almost and, all in the area have yeah, found some way to stream their service. Zoom is a common one but some like David Caden minister at the First Congregational Church in Ithaca felt more suited to other tools.
3: And we chose the YouTube platform because there's no upper limit on how many people
1: can participate on a Sunday morning, which is different from how a lot of other churches are treating live streaming. Uh, But right from the beginning, from my perspective at least, I wanted to put something
3: in place that would have longevity on its side. So then we could use this
4: platform. And then, you know, whenever we can meet again in person, we can continue to use that platform. Be
1: it YouTube premieres, Facebook live, or holding service through Zoom, groups have had to ask themselves, what is the best answer for them?
8: I
0: think the intimacy and the participation side versus the, we want it to be a good product that is sort of done right, is one of the tensions I definitely see in what different people are doing.
1: Reynolds and And Caden are just some of the so many who have had to adapt quickly to gatherings online, leading to changes
8: sometimes being thrown into the mix. Typically during our sermons in person, we use a PowerPoint presentation. But I think just the past two Sundays, when with the speakers, we're no longer uh, having accompanying overheads because of some of the technical issues and people preferred to see a live person speaking.
1: Pastor Ward Davis leads the Vineyard Church in Ithaca. Aside from the obvious location and technical adjustments, another big aspect of their service gets hit too in the transition.
8: Right, you typically have a band with a guitarist, acoustic guitarist, electric guitar, bass, drums, and We've had to really scale that back.
1: And Instead, so, they have different do, worship leaders accompanied by family members lead from their
8: homes. It's definitely pretty rough. The, the acoustics, frankly, are pretty bad. I know some churches are putting money into microphones and, and technology to kind of help with that. Um, music, we're doing a
0: mixture of live stuff and recorded um, so that's different normally we, we really like live music and we wouldn't be using recordings. Um, but recording is the only way we can hear more than one voice singing. <laughs> so if we use a recording of a choir or
9: a larger group singing, then that, you know. And you cannot sing together on Zoom. It does not work. We have tried <laughs> and it does not work.
1: That's Lauren Corfine, co-president of the Ithaca Reform Temple.
9: So it's been very hard because it's, you know, part of what really kind of lifts us up. Is, is singing beautiful words and beautiful melodies together. And the way we have to do it on Zoom is everybody mutes, one person sings, and we all sing with that one person in our own spaces. So it's hard to have that same community feel and to really feel like we're in it together on the other side.
1: Despite the separation, that's something that hasn't left for the groups we spoke to. The sense of community?
0: I think the biggest thing is just the sense of the joy of realizing that this community is really is as strong a community as we want to think we are that we care about each other this much and being together is this important to us and we're not gonna neglect it or turn away from it but really work at making it happen.
1: With live streaming, there's typically some way to interact, whether it be responding to each other verbally on Zoom or using chat functions on things like Facebook and YouTube. But sometimes that goes even further.
8: I know we've been encouraging folks, both the elders and also the congregation at large, also to just communicate with, you know, just to pick up their phone and call somebody or text somebody. And I think sometimes just even getting a a brief text from somebody goes a long ways.
9: We put together a a triplet buddy system. So we just sort of put together uh, groups of three and asked those three groups to be in touch with each other in whatever way made sense for them. So if that's weekly emails or phone calls or Zoom calls, just to make sure that everybody's got somebody checking up on them fairly regularly. It's been important for us not only to connect people with any kind of services or support that they might need, but also to help people feel like they're being in service in some way during this time, as they can, of course.
8: Mm -hmm. Uh, We break up into smaller groups two times over the course of the, the Sunday morning service, and the first group is primarily a way for people to meet one another if they don't know already, know each other, and also an opportunity for them to talk about what's going on in their life and share any needs they might have. Because we recognize that, obviously, the danger is, is that we have people who are singles who may be feeling isolated. And so, uh, so one of the ways we attempt to stay connected is by, one, having a Zoom service on Sunday, but during that service have people break up into smaller groups. And we worshipers
1: like Akina Church McKay, Church who attends the Vineyard Church of Ithaca, can take a lot of value in that.
9: You know, you don't know everyone very well. And when you go to church, you usually just like hang around or talk to the people that you know, super well. And so it's been cool, like talking to other people that I normally wouldn't meet, or normally wouldn't get a chance to meet, because there's not enough times, you know, it's easy for people to get isolated and feel alone. And some people are really scared during this time. And, It's just really important to foster that, you know, level of care. The most important thing for us has been making sure that members of our congregation know that they're not alone, that this, you know, the stay-at-home orders, the virus itself, all of it can be very isolating. We've spent a lot of time communicating with congregants. We have made sure that they know that we are a place they can come to if they're frightened or lonely or hungry or you know struggling in some way. We have some people with some mental health challenges, I know, and
0: people, like I said, who live alone because of health issues are really quite fearful, anxious about going out at all. And so I think for them, make, knowing that people are available, checking in, talking with them, being supportive.
8: So I think this is an opportunity for us to maybe rethink the habits of our life, our priorities, our relationships, and maybe think about what maybe God would have us change once life begins to kind of resume.
9: On the other side of all of these challenges, the internet goes out, tech, all kinds of technological things, we can not sing together, it's hard to connect with people on as a squares on a screen. On the other side of that, we're all so grateful that we have this imperfect technology <laughs> through which it's hard to connect because we can still connect, we can still see each other, and we can still sort of sing we can come together with the intention of creating some kind of meaning in all of this in in this incredibly scary and uncertain and lonely time. I mean, I'm so grateful for these little squares on the screen. Several people in the congregation who've, who've had family members and friends who are sick, who've had family members and friends who've died, just being able to connect and greet one another and share some intentional space for an hour together is, is really an incredible gift.
1: How these congregations will get together in person again is still yet to be known. But when they do, the technology and the way they've kept their communities together during the pandemic makes it so when they meet again, it won't need to be as much a reuniting, but instead confirmation of a community that has their backs, even in dark times. For WICB News, I'm Jay Bradley. If you are just tuning in, welcome to Best of Ithaca Now! I'm your host, Jay Bradley. Finding, sharing, and discovering local music? Well, there's an app for that and it was created by three students right here in the Ithaca area. WICB correspondents Agnes Scotti and Antonio Fermi show us what this new type of social media is and how it works.
10: 2020 is in full swing here in Ithaca, New York. Chili Fest has come and gone, and the frigid temperatures and snow-covered hills mark the beginning of a new year. For many Ithacans, a fresh start means discovering new music, whether it's swaying to a live performance at the haunt or counting down the days until Porch Fest arrives. But a new streaming service catering solely to young, local artists is about to hit this musical little town. I'm Agnes Scotti.
3: And I'm Antonio Fermi. This week, we're taking a look at Quadio, a new streaming service that is specifically created for college students around the country, looking for a platform to display and share their music with other fellow college students. Quadio has recruited a few students from many college campuses across the nation to represent their platform.
10: George Lomas, a junior who is one of the three Quadio representatives on Ithaca College's campus, described Quadio as a fantastic combination between SoundCloud and LinkedIn. He said students can use a platform to find people with a variety of different skills in terms of playing instruments, producing, creating music, or in his case, students who are passionate about photography or videography.
11: I would like to capture them visually through photos and videos, so anytime that I hear that there's a concert going on or some, any sort of performance, my goal is to be there in order to capture it.
3: Sam Smith, who is also a junior Quadio student representative, already manages two artists on campus, and said his role in the music business is more on the managerial side.
12: So my role for Quadio has been more um, event planning and coordination in the business side of things moving forward. Um, so... Like George mentioned beforehand, we are planning like a huge event at the end of the semester to bring um, really talented local musicians that are on the college campuses between Ithaca College and Cornell uh, because there is a lot of talent between both campuses and we don't really come together a lot of the time. So I think uh, I had a really cool idea to bring those campuses together and really interact with the talent we have on both campuses.
11: I think the biggest responsibility we have right now is to stay in contact with the Cornell campus reps for Quadio so that we can plan a big event at the end of the year that kind of brings a larger audience and brings awareness to Quadio.
10: Lomas said the launch of the Quadio app, along with the concert they would sponsor at the end of the year, would be a great way for the platform to get recognized. He said the potential behind the concept of bringing aspiring student musicians together was a key factor in getting involved with the launch.
11: Just the idea of supporting local talent and local musicians to slowly get their name seen and recognized from other local talents all around the country, it was really cool to me to be able to not only see them perform, but also be able to take photos and take uh, videos of people on stage because at some point I would love to do that professionally. So I think this would be a really good intro. The company is helping students who are involved
3: find their passion for music, regardless of whether that means creating or producing. Smith said that he, before Quadio, he wasn't really sure what his passion was, but he now feels that he's found something he cares about on a personal and professional level.
12: I mean, music's been a part of my entire life since I've like grown up. Uh, through my family, through my friends uh, and myself, I'm constantly listening to music. Um, and I like I went into school going into cinema photo and then I kind of realized that wasn't really my passion. And I think music management and like working within the business side of the music industry, um, that was the first time I really felt, a connection with something I was very passionate about and it just stayed. So like ever since I started working in it, that passion has never really gone away. I've only wanted to learn more. I've only wanted to grow more. Um, and like that's exactly what I've been doing. And so I think that passion just comes from one, like living with musicians and like constantly hearing new music is so exciting. Going to shows like constantly connecting with new people in the industry and just constantly moving forward and learning. And, um, like working within the passion and finding the things I love to do within it.
10: Smith said he has watched the music culture grow during his time here at IC and is excited to see Ithaca College and Cornell University students collaborate, which we all agreed is a pretty uncommon circumstance.
12: It's been really interesting to work with the people in the campus reps uh, for Quadio over at Cornell because they've talked a lot about their music scene over there, and I think what's really cool about Ithaca College, it's very music driven, and there's a lot of local artists and student artists and local bands that like play shows at like house shows and like students have created entire venues in their houses and have shows every weekend. And I think that's a really cool opportunity um, for both campuses to like really come together because I think those both exist on either campus. So I think this event is a a great way for those two music scenes to really come together and make something incredible.
11: One of the problems with college, in my opinion, is that people tend to take their four years to kind of focus on their studies and focus on themselves to then leave and immediately shoot for the sky rather than, like, taking the time in college to, like, think about where they are and who's around them and to really, like, branch out in the short amount of time that we're here. And I think Quadio has kind of allowed Sam and I to um, do that, we're, you know, kind of spread out in Ithaca. Uh, rather than just like remaining people on campus and remaining students like now we have an opportunity to become part of the Ithaca community and be more out there locally which I think is huge and
12: it's very hard for musicians to connect with each other Um, and I think at a local level it's very cool when people are able to connect and like go out and jam together or write music together or like if they need a collaboration uh, with a singer or songwriter they can find it um, and that's really hard, especially as college students, not only like in the music industry, is it hard to like go out and find collaborations. Um, but I think what's really cool about Quadio is it, it allows you to do all those things, not only like you were saying on that local level, but like George is saying, it allows artists to kind of branch out.
3: Lomas said the platform isn't just for people looking to create music, but for anyone
11: who's interested in expanding their music taste on a local level. So a lot of people think it's only just for musicians, which is totally not true. It's for people who even just want to listen to music. It's for people who want to be involved in the music industry. It's people who want to just maybe just put a podcast out there talking about music or it can be anything. And and what's so great about it is that it starts small and then eventually you meet people, you make connections through Quadio and it gets a lot bigger. So it's a, it's an opportunity-based platform.
10: Quadio's website claims that by finding music through the narrow lens of location, you're not only finding a new hit that is right for you, but you actually might enjoy it because of where you are. They say that by doing so, you're opening your ears and your mind to the music being made in your own community, whether that's local or on a college campus.
3: George and Sam said that they're not stopping anytime soon and that we can expect more events from them on the horizon. For Agnes Scotti, I'm Antonio Fermi, WICB News.
1: Keeping the theme of connecting people, WICB correspondent Sarah Horbakowitz has been exploring the idea that every person is within six degrees of separation with everyone else. In the series Six Degrees, Sarah decided to pick up a phone book and call a random number in Tompkins County to see where it would end up. Here is the fifth episode of this series.
13: Welcome back to Six Degrees, a podcast series that started with one blind phone call and a hope that six random strangers would agree to tell me their life stories. I'm now five connections into my journey to test this theory of six degrees of separation and prove that we're all a bit more connected than we think. And after speaking to Sherman last week... This fifth degree starts with his friend, Bob. Hello, Sarah. How are you? How are you doing? I'm good. Good.
14: Where are you? In Ithaca? Yes. What do you want to talk about? This is your interview.
13: Just tell me a little bit about yourself, what your connection is to Ithaca.
14: Well, uh, all right. I'm 73 years old. I grew up in Lowville, New York. It's near Watertown, so I tell people I moved here for the climate. (laughs) I came to Ithaca in 1972 with uh, my wife at the time, she was uh, going to attend Cornell, she did attend Cornell. She left years ago and actually passed away 25 or 30 years ago, and, uh, but I've been here ever since. Fond
13: memories with his family kept Bob grounded to upstate New York, but his career took off early
14: on. I graduated from college in 1968. My brother had gone into the Navy flight program two years earlier. And um, I visited him in Pensacola when he was training and uh, was kind of fascinated by the whole thing. And then in 1968, there was a draft, but no lottery. So once I graduated college, I was going to be drafted into the Army immediately. So I joined the Navy flight program instead. So it's not like I had a lifelong desire to fly, but it turns out that I had an aptitude for it, and, uh, and I liked it a lot.
13: His time in the Navy was full of ups, downs, and upside downs.
14: You start out in a small single-engine airplane, and then we would immediately start learning aerobatics in the Navy. That's what you did. As soon as you soloed, you started doing, you know, loops and rolls and et cetera, spins. (laughs) Pretty fun. Yeah. After I uh, finished my training, I went back and was a flight instructor for a couple of years. And so I taught... That part of the syllabus that was aerobatics three times a day for two years. And uh, I had enough. And when
13: you're teaching people to fly, is it ever nerve wracking to be with someone who's flying for the first time? I have
14: controls also, so no, it's not. Okay. A, you know, <laughs> it's, it's not at all nerve wracking. Uh, there, there was one time in the Navy that, all right, so the student was in the front seat and I'm in the back seat and we were doing spins and. Um, in the middle of the spin, his seat belt came loose and he fell out of the seat and yeah. kind of got his head caught between the dashboard and the canopy. And I'm thinking, wow, this is kind of, uh, I, I hope he can get back in the seat and recover and I hope he's not on the controls where I can't move them. Check the controls and he wasn't blocking them. I could still recover from the spin if I needed to. And uh, I decided to just wait and see what happens, see if he could get back in the seat and recover himself. And he did.
13: Oh, my God. That takes such, like, patience. (laughs) And I
14: said, you know, that wasn't so good. I think we better climb back up and try it again.
13: Once Bob was back in Ithaca after Navy training, he worked his way into the skies once again.
14: Moved to Ithaca. I got a job with a company at the airport that does maintenance and pumps fuel, and they also had a little charter service. And so I worked first pumping fuel and then... uh, flying airplanes for this um, little charter business called Chart Air. And actually that was a lot of fun back in those days. We flew small planes and they were relatively modestly priced. So we flew a lot of um, interesting people.
13: And he built up quite the resume of passengers.
14: Let me tell you some of the people that flew in those small airplanes in the early days. At the time, uh, Cornell University had a renowned uh, astronomy department. Uh, Frank Drake, he's the man who um, started the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Tom Gold was a very famous astronomer with some crackpot ideas. Carl Sagan was a frequent customer. Oh, wow. And it was... Fun, because uh, sometimes I'd be taking him to, like, speak somewhere,
9: mm-hmm.
14: and uh, he would invite me to come along and attend the talk, and that was fun.
13: Then he began piloting his own future.
14: A few years later, uh, I left Chart Air and started my own company. One of my first customers were um, Jane Fonda and Tom Hayden. One time, we flew the whole republican leadership out to california newt ginrich was the speaker of the house you know just about anybody you can name we've flown uh, at some point or another
13: but i wanted to know about one passenger in particular my last interviewee how do you know sherman
14: that's a good question i don't even know the answer
13: and as it turns out sherman's father-in-law mike abrams had been a special passenger of bob's
14: he was the um, editor of the norton anthology of uh, English literature for many many years during the Obama administration. He was awarded the Medal of Freedom and um, He was I think 99 at the time we flew him down to uh, uh, DC with Judy and Sherm to uh, get the award that was pretty cool and I have a photograph of all of them there and I knew that I flew them.
15: Yeah and, <laughs> and,
14: uh, Mike Abrams is wearing this very nice uh, black suit and some very nice black shoes and when he passed away uh turns out that he and I were the same size and uh, that's my wedding funeral and bar mitzvah suit.
13: And of course I had one final question for Bob. What was the most rewarding part of all your years of flying?
14: What's the most rewarding? I gosh you know it's uh, just flying all over the world and seeing so many different places that you never ever ever would be able to get to any other way it's been uh, a a wonderful uh, career
13: and with that I was ready to get started on my next and final call of the series there's anyone then maybe it was a passenger you flew um, or anything like that
14: Louise Cannon is a um, good friend of mine and a um, teacher at Ithaca College she teaches um, writing and uh, we've been good friends for 30 years. Well, I would uh, love to meet you in person. Sherman, you and me should go have a cocktail sometime.
10: For sure. Talk soon. Bye-bye. All right. Bye, Sarah. One
13: degree closer and one story more. For WICB News, I'm Sarah Horbakowitz.
1: Sarah just graduated from Ithaca College, and we wish the world of congratulations to her. And we know she's going to go far with what comes next. You can find the whole Six Degrees Between Us All podcast on Spotify. We'll be ending this season of Ithaca Now with a story from just graduated former station manager Peter Schimpelli, whom I could not have been more grateful to work with in my time at WICB. To put it lightly, there's a lot going on in the news right now. I'll speak for
16: myself. Sometimes I feel like I'm getting news fatigue. I just feel tired of seeing breaking news. Part of the problem with the way the news covers issues like COVID-19, and the way the news covers all issues, is that one thing will take over the whole news cycle, not leaving room for anything else. There's a lot that's not being talked about right now, and one of these issues is immigration. The US-Mexico border is sometimes a huge focus in mainstream news, like during the family separation crisis, and when President Trump first came out with his build that wall sentiment. But truthfully it's an ongoing issue. I wanted to learn more for myself about border policy and the situation at the border. But as I read books and listened to podcasts, I realized that I didn't know as much as I thought I did. This made me think, what are the parts of the story I'm missing? And more importantly, why are they missing? Today we'll look at the U.S.-Mexico border, not just through the lens of the facts, but through the lens of how the media has reported on it in the past. And what they've got wrong.
1: Are you a citizen? Okay.
7: Part one. The current status.
16: Before we take a look at the media, first, a quick summary of what's happening at the border and how we got here.
15: Yeah, my name is uh, Patricia Rodriguez. I am a chairperson for the politics department. I'm also part of the steering committee of the Tompkins County Immigrant Rights Coalition.
16: I wanted to talk to Patricia to learn more about the political situation at the U.S.-Mexico border.
15: Um, I think it's important, it's really, really important to understand that there's a history of this. It's policies that go back to colonial decisions.
16: The complex situation at the border can't be defined by just the family separation crisis, or by Trump building a wall. The current situation has come from decades of US economic policy, and by
15: Extractivism and that being at the root of migration.
16: And this led us to the current situation. The border was on everyone's mind in the summer of 2018, when the family separation crisis took over the news cycle, and an image of a daughter being separated from her family circulated the internet.
17: That, that picture is, is totally tragic. Unfortunately, like, what is happening is totally as a result of this policy for years now. like People are dying like that all the time.
16: That was journalist Todd Miller, who wrote Empire of Borders, which details the militarization of the United States border. Now, the current situation at the border is resulting in migrants fleeing violence in their communities.
15: And they're going through tons of difficult, risky, deadly situations to get here.
16: And facing more harmful situations when they get to the U.S.
17: There's a, a report uh, that by the ACLU that came out in 2015 recording over 30,000 cases in short-term border patrol detention of mis- mistreatment of children.
16: There's so much that we could get into. The process of migrants actually securing citizenship is a long, tedious process that could take years. And when someone is fleeing violence or threats in their community and wants to seek asylum through the U.S.'s legal process...
18: The likelihood of winning is right around 1%. Um, So a lot of people are desperate, waiting in shelters for years, and then the outcome is extremely stacked against them.
16: That's Katie Sherrard.
18: I am the director of communications at KBI since early 2018.
16: She's been working on the border since 2003.
18: Well, and a lot of people I talked to were just like, you know, like, it's a certain death if I go home. Like, my daughter will be killed. I will be recruited into the gangs. Like, they have, you know, my death, like, the warrant is out for my death. and so, even if the odds are really, really slim, I'm going to go with the very, very slim odds rather than the certainty of getting killed if I return.
7: Part 2 The News.
16: So, we're caught up on the current status. The real focus of this story, though, is how the news treats this issue. Fair.org, or Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, reports on the news. The news is supposed to be the free press, the fourth estate a watchdog on Congress, corporations, and the Supreme Court. When the news doesn't fulfill that duty, FAIR.org is a watchdog on the news. In a bunch of articles, FAIR points out that the news has some issues with how it covers the border. It points out that the news outlets dehumanize migrants, and the news misses the point that climate change is one of the leading factors driving migration. Journalist Todd Miller also
17: sees some issues with how the mainstream media covers the border. A lot of times with the with the, main, with the mass media, it, it doesn't follow the, what the story is, it follows the perception. Katie Sherrard from the Kino
16: Border Initiative
17: brought up the same
16: point.
18: There have been moments when everyone has wanted to come to the border, like the family separation. But families have been separated because of the border for years, actually beginning in large part with Obama. Um, and the journalists uh, and other media outlets never were particularly uh, interested in covering I
16: also talked to Jeff Cohen who founded FAIR and later founded the Park Center for Independent Media.
4: The mainstream media leave out so many issues when it comes to border policy. One of the main issues, we're getting so much immigration from Guatemala, Salvador, Honduras. And those three countries have all had their regimes and their societies trampled by U.S. foreign policy. Part of the reason those societies have so many problems is because the U.S. has installed right wing governments, has funded death squads, has brought uh, guns into those nations.
16: The current director of the Park Center for Independent Media.
4: I'm uh, Raza Rumi.
17: He
16: has some similar concerns.
17: These policies have been there by successive U.S. administrations. They're in part a response to income inequality. And so the best uh, option there is to paint the outsider or the, or the migrant or the immigrant as the enemy. You can't dehumanize human beings by re- reducing them to undocumented. Undocumented uh, you know, strips them of their humanity.
7: Part 3 Systemic roots.
16: As you can tell by this story, I'm a reporter, but I'm also a citizen of the United States. And I noticed that I didn't have a real knowledge on this situation from our mainstream news. I didn't know why it was so hard for people to come from Mexico and get citizenship. And I didn't know why the border was talked about nonstop during some months, but then immediately forgotten about.
15: So if we're going to take a look at the root of what the problem is, we need to be focused on the role of the U.S.
16: I talked with Patricia to learn more. As a professor and chair of the Ithaca College Politics Department, she focuses on social change and the current hardships facing communities in Colombia.
15: So it's it's really dire situations that at the bottom of it is U.S. policy to the region, both in terms of political issues and militarization. And it's helping a few of the wealthy and it's putting a lot of poor people, majority of the poor people at risk
16: journalist Todd Miller says that this is what mainstream news media
17: mainly I'm thinking about cable news is missing. It's almost like you let like you're in a forest, you see a tree and you describe every pot, thing on the tree from the amount of branch amount of leaves on a branch, but all, but the rest of the forest you miss. Right? The bigger picture, the history of it, how it became this way, who are the who are the different actors, where's it going in the future? The big forest of it is is missed.
7: Part 4. The Most Important Voices.
16: According to Todd and Patricia, these elements are what's key in understanding the U.S.-Mexico border, the systemic causes of the issues, which all has to do with the United States' economic policy on the region. Katie Sherrard from the Kino Border Initiative mentioned another piece missing from the story.
18: I think there's not necessarily a total understanding of just how difficult conditions are in communities of origin.
16: Katie already mentioned the legal hardships of people seeking asylum coming from Mexico, but she says some misconceptions about people that cross the border illegally also come from the news not sharing migrant stories.
18: Well, if you think about places like Mexico, where there's so many people who, for reasons of family reunification or for safety or economic stability, are seeking to, to migrate. Last I heard, the wait time was about 25 years. Some people can wait 25 years to reunite with family members, but a lot of people can't. Like, 25 years is a really long time.
16: FAIR.org founder Jeff Cohen shares a similar concern about the media.
4: I mean, what you want from mainstream media, you get it from democracy now, you get it from the independent media. Let's hear from the immigrants. You know, why did they come here in the first place? How are they contributing to society now? But you don't see the humanness.
16: Jeff says this is a key piece that the news doesn't include. The news doesn't share the stories firsthand from people who are migrating. The impact it leaves is that readers of the news don't understand why people come to seek asylum in the U.S. Again, journalist Todd Miller. There's this
17: like, oh wow, this happened, but there's not like, wow, why is this happening? Why is that person in this river? Why would they feel like they have to cross?
16: What we need to be hearing is why they're fleeing. Ithaca College's Patricia Rodriguez.
15: Going deep into issues, not just of violence from the gangs, but going deep into issues of where do those gangs get their guns? We need to pay more attention to those that are, that are suffering, right? Like, what are they saying? Why are they at risk? and deciding that, that they need to take a risk. What is this, this state throwing at them that is connected to U.S. policymaking?
7: Part five, where do we go from here?
16: With all these issues in the mainstream media, there are media sources doing justice by these people's stories. Independent podcasts and independent news sources like The Intercept, Democracy Now!, The Young Turks and Mother Jones, to name a few, are doing journalism that gets to the heart of what's really fueling tension on the border, the systemic economic roots of the issue and the personal stories for migrants.
18: Katie sharar You know, talking to people mostly about, only about like a particular aspect of their experience without asking as well, like just questions that would help kind of flesh out the whole understanding about where they're from, why they're why they're leaving.
4: Jeff Cohen. And these are terms that mainstream media uses to describe humans. The flood of immigrants, the deluge, you know, know, those are more or less somewhat natural disasters. They aren't human beings, but it's a way that mainstream media demonizes people. We never hear about the U.S. role in mucking up those societies. Patricia Rodriguez. In general, I think that uh,
15: journalists are not helping. We don't hear about the people that are walking through the jungle in Colombia that is filled with armed actors. We need to understand more of that. And that's like really not being uh, touched on.
16: This story really is meant as an overview of the issue and a look at the US-Mexico border through one lens, what the news has done right and what it's done wrong, to really understand the history of the border and to understand the struggles the people migrating to the U.S. are facing, www.wicbgood.news has some recommendations of books and podcasts that do a good job explaining. For WICB News and for Good News, I'm Peter Ciampelli.
1: That package was part of our special Good News digital experience, which you can find on wicbgood.news. There you can find a special web experience and an additional interview. And that's all for tonight's edition of Ithaca Now. You can listen to all of our stories on WICB.org. And if you'd like to listen to past broadcasts, subscribe to us on our SoundCloud. Or keep your eyes on your favorite podcast app, where we are currently working on bringing our entire backlog of Ithaca Now too. And before we go, we have some thank yous for tonight. Manager of Television and Radio Operations Jeremy Menard, WICB Station Manager Sam Ives, WICB Programming Director Lou Barron, and our new staff, Production Director Celine Tutar former news director Bridget Bright, and correspondents Antonio Fermi, Himadri Saith, Agnes Scotti, Chella Beeks, Alex Dean, Sarah Herbakowitz, and Peter Champelli. All of the music from our intro and outro comes from Dr. Dundas, who hails from Louisville, Kentucky. Have any feedback, story ideas, just want to say hi? Feel free to reach out by emailing news at wicb.org. Thank you for joining us, and despite the current crisis, I hope you can have a great summer. WICB News will be back with more full episodes of Ithaca Now in the fall. And to get your WICB News fix in the summer, be sure to subscribe to our podcast, The Latest, which comes out and airs on the station every weekday. I'm Jay Bradley, and thank you for listening to Ithaca Now on WICB.